For this ordinary time, we have been studying the Gospel of John, and you've had your weekly readers to read along with uh, the chapter that the message comes with on any given Sunday. And you've had some questions on those readers, and you've probably begun to notice by now as we get to John 5, that this could be true of a lot of Scripture, but it's certainly true of John, um, that reading John, you realize that what's being said functions on a lot of different levels. And so on the first sort of, if we're just like doing sort of careful Bible study here, we might say that John wants us to know that this is one of the signs, this healing of this man at the pool, this is one of the signs that Jesus did that was meant to reveal who Jesus was. It was meant to reveal the power and the authority that there is in Jesus and in the kingdom of God that he represents. And this was meant to say something about the hope for Messiah. So if we're just looking at, a, at it on a Bible study level, um, healing the sick, especially somebody paralyzed for 38 years, is a major sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so it was meant to draw people to Jesus and to his Father and to the kingdom of God. Well, secondly, if we were looking at this passage maybe to learn something about Jesus, we might even be more stunningly amazed by who he is and what he does, realizing the power that was in him to simply speak, right? Like when one of us are sick, you know, we might pray for each other for weeks or months at a time, kind of hoping something would happen. And of course, that's what we do. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus literally just spoke, take up your mat and walk. And the guy took up his mat and walked. Are you like feeling me here? <laughs> I mean, that's a big deal. <laughs> and it's meant to say something about Jesus, his power, his insight. He simply knew what was true about the man. He spoke and what he spoke became real. And then thirdly, uh, almost always with John, you have some sort of spiritual insight. That's kind of an overtone or undertone that kind of fits you know, inside the text where John's wanting us to see something like a spiritual truth as well, you might say. And in this case, I want to suggest that it revolves around this question from Jesus, do you want to be made whole? Do you really want to get healed? And I believe Jesus is talking about here in a holistic sense, not just his paralysis. As somebody who's been sick like that for 38 years has adopted certain mindsets, certain worldviews, certain things that they believe are true about them and others, family, civil authorities, you know, what we might think of as um, medical insurance, you know, those kinds of things that all come into your life when somebody's seriously sick. Well, this has been happening for this guy for almost four decades. And so the question, do you want to be healed, I think is actually brilliantly insightful and a much harder question to answer than what might, you know, just meet the eye on first pass. Because it suggests things like, I might have to change. I might have to adapt my lifestyle. I might have to give up my excuses. I might have to stop blaming others who don't put me in the water when it's time. And I might have to take some responsibility for my spiritual condition. So we heard read the epistle this morning from Philippians 2. And if we're looking at this again, kind of from where John might be guiding us spiritually, then what if being made whole 
in the sense of just human wholeness, in terms of what it means to be human as God intended. What if wholeness means something very much like Jesus' own spirituality? Have you ever had that thought? Have you ever had a thought that Jesus had a spirituality? Like he had an approach to being who he was. He had a way, a manner of being what we today would call spiritual. And so what if our wholeness is very much like his own spirituality, and this is why Paul says, let Jesus' mind be in you. See your Philippians text there? Let Jesus' mind be in you. Let the mind of Christ be in you. So what if wholeness looks something like this? In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. What if that's what spiritual wholeness actually looks like? And for me, it raises the question, what does this passage do to our current language about freedom and rights? What might this say to our present massive preoccupation for what I am free to do and what I have the right to do and you can't tell me I can't. Now again, just if you think of Jesus' life and think of him that he's actually living out of a set of convictions or values or priorities or something like that, that he's living out of what we would now call a spirituality. Can you see him saying to, you know, he just take his temptations? Can you see him saying, well, I actually do have the right to turn that into bread, that rock, so I think I will. Or him asserting his rights in some sort of way that we hear today. I'm actually free to do this, and so I'll do it. And actually what I want to suggest to you, not only just for you personally, but for your families, for your workplaces, for your communities, and for the human community, I want to suggest that the current language around freedom and rights without context, and I'll say more about that, and without responsibility, they're actually a horrible tyranny and a really tightly bound prison. They are not what they're made out to be. I mean, they've come to us in American culture essentially from the French Revolution that said to us, the best way to be human is I can do anything I want up to but not including harming you. So if I'm not harming you, then I'm at liberty to do whatever it is that I want to do. That's what is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. That's what floats in the air today. Okay, you know, I guess fine, fair enough as it goes, but without context. See, what restrained Jesus' sense of freedom all the time when it came to turning rocks into bread and that kind of stuff was his sense of responsibility. Think back to the Genesis story in Joseph. Potiphar's wife's like disrobing and saying, come on, let's get it on. Right now, you and me, you're young and handsome and well-built and I'm kind of sick of Pharaoh. You know, let's, let's, let's get it on here, Joseph. And what's Joseph's answer? Me and God are up to something important. 
How can I turn my back on my responsibilities for God is saving my nation through what's happening here? How can I turn my back on my responsibilities for a few little fleeting moments of sexual pleasure? That's what's going on in Joseph's head. That, my friend, is a spirituality, and it's a spirituality grounded in responsibility, not in rights, not in freedoms. It is a completely different thing. And so Paul says, let that kind of mind that was in Jesus, let that mind be in you. Let that approach, what I want to say to spirituality, be in you. I mean, how is it that rights got to the top of the heap over these other choices like humility and service that you see in this Philippians passage? What happened? What's gone wrong? And it has something to do, if we were reading more in Paul, Paul would say it has something to do with spiritually malformed powers that exist. And these are, these are spiritual powers, these are human powers, but they're the things, I, I love that German word zeitgeist. It just means the spirit of the age. There's something in the air. It's what's in the air. And, and Paul talks about it as kind of principalities and powers. They're the things that control us without even thinking about it. But it's this same Paul who said, look, you are free to eat meat sacrificed idols. Of course you are. Duh. But Paul says, don't. Give up your rights to it. If it's going to stumble somebody next to you and confuse them about what God's up to on the earth, if it's going to confuse people about what God's doing in and through the church, then don't do it. Don't make your fundamental paradigm through which you do life that which I'm free to do, that which I have the right to do, but rather, Paul says, let this mind be in you so that in humility you would actually value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, I would say here, freedom and rights, but each of you to the interest to the freedom and rights of others. So if I were to put it in, a, in even a more sort of 40,000 foot level, I would say something like this. That my, this is just my view for whatever it's worth. That as a society and maybe even the whole Western world, and, and it's growing rapidly everywhere, we've come to the place, I think mostly because of science and technology and that sort of thing. There's probably other spiritual reasons as well. But I think we've come to the place where we think we sit in judgment of the Scriptures. Are you feeling me here? Think of textual criticism. Think of you know, arguments over authorship. Think of what you hear in bar theology. You know, how can, somebody be, how can something be relevant today that was written 6,000 years ago? And it includes things like bashing babies' heads on the rocks. And, you know, how can this, you know, and you, we, we have this sense in our society today that we stand above the scriptures and we get to judge them. Well, that's convenient because it allows us then to say, Rights and freedoms, yo. Not let this mind be in you. Not consider this other sort of spirituality. See, that will only happen to the person who says, I actually place my life under the authority of this text, under the authority of the community that's lived out this text for thousands of years, believing somehow and I'm not asking you to take on some sort of fundamentalist view of the authority of Scripture or anything like that. But let me just put this thought in your head so that next time you're in a bar or in a grocery store or with a family member, what if just something like this is true? 
that the scriptures being breathed from God somehow into human beings. So a bit like Jesus, you know, fully human, fully divine. What if the scriptures are somehow fully human, meaning obviously there is human agency, but they're fully divine, and they were breathed by God into these writers, and all through time, from the writing of the Pentateuch, all the way down to the writing of the last book of the, of the New Testament, and then 2,000 years of church history, what if God has superintended all that? Are you feeling me here? Superintended all that such that the Bible remains suitably powerful for his purposes. What if that's the truth about Scripture? That it literally remains his voice. It literally contains his thoughts, his inspirations, his insights about what it means to be human in the image of God and all that God's up to. Well, see, if one can go there regarding a sense of Scripture, then we can put ourselves under it in the sense. And we can wonder these really radical thoughts. I might actually be a happier, more contented, well-rounded, and otherly person if I began to really change my mind and take on the spirituality of Jesus. So what I think is so genius about this question that, that Jesus asked this invalid is it suggests this. What if the hardest part of becoming a Christian or the hardest part of spiritual growth is wanting to? What if it really has nothing to do with arguments over the authority of Scripture? And what if it really has nothing to do with, oh, the church is stupid, you know, the church blew it on cosmology, the, you know, the earth's not flat, you know, the church blew it on slavery, the church blew it on women, maybe the church is blowing it now on human sexuality, right? You know how this story goes on and on and on it goes. And a kind of setting aside of any sort of authority that, that might be actually good to us. Well, what if the hardest part is actually wanting to have Jesus' mind and all that other stuff is subconsciously bluffing? It's a way to not actually take serious these very deep, deep things that we call spirituality, Christian spirituality. I mean, come on, just think with me for a minute. What would have to be revolutionized in your life to actually put the interests of others ahead of you? Just as a routine way of being in the world. It became your walk, your manner of being in the world. But something deceives us into thinking that our present minds are superior to the mind that was in Jesus. Why else would you manipulate and belittle a spouse? Why else would you cut somebody off in traffic? Why else? Just think about all of the things that people rationalize to be brutal to others. Come on, the brutality of this world does not arise out of nowhere. Come on. The brutality of this world, the day in and day out, moment by moment, brutality of this world seen in families and among nations and amongst uh, ethnic and religious factions, this brutality does not emerge out of the air. It emerges out of a mind that is not like Christ. Yet somehow looking at all the brutality of the world, we still somehow come to this conclusion that our minds are superior. 
And what Jesus is saying to this guy is something like this. And I love this story that I read somewhere from Tom Wright. Uh, Tom's English, and so it's a a story from England. You know, picture this sort of a mansion. I don't know if it's really a mansion, but sort of a mansion with one of those really long English gardens. Can you picture that, you know? Goes like a couple football fields back, you know? Well, I don't know. The owner was gone for a long time for some reason. I don't remember all the details. And the garden had kind of gotten overrun, and the boys were playing in the garden, just thinking, you know, we can play in here. And so they'd go in there every day and play. And playing in there, they discovered this abandoned tennis court. It was all covered with leaves and stuff, and the net was down. And so they took their ball, being English, probably a soccer ball, what we call a soccer ball. They took their football, and they did what boys would do. They invented a game. And so one boy would stand on the other side of the net and one boy on this side of the net and they started kicking the ball across trying to make it land in the squares, right? So maybe I'll try to make it land in the out of bound line for doubles. Or, you know, here I'm gonna make it land over there and they started playing this game. Well, one day the owner comes home and he looks out his window and he sees what they're doing and rather than being angry at trespassers, he, he feels this sort of, joyful pity almost and he goes in the closet and he gets out a bundle of you know tennis uh, rackets and tennis balls and he starts walking out to the court well the boys of course are afraid you know like here comes the the homeowner and they're afraid and as the homeowner gets up and you know gets in eye contact with the boys he simply says would you like to try the real thing they say well what's the real thing well tennis of course Here, I'll show you. And so the owner sweeps off the court, he tightens the net, and he begins to teach them the more difficult, but the much more rewarding game of tennis. The game the court was made for. And this is what our scriptures are saying to us this morning. Would you like to know the real thing? Like, it's kind of a crazy thought, I know. But just what if Jesus' insights were superior to that of the French Revolution? I know, it's crazy. But just what if? Would you really like to know the real thing? Would you like to see what it means to really be human? Would you like to know what it is you're really built for? This is what Jesus is offering a new and right, and not right in the moralistic kind of sense, but right in the sense of in alignment with what God created us for. And this is why this question, do you want to be made well, do you want to be made whole, is so genius. But we're often caught in the unyielding grip of excuses and rationalizations. You know, excuses like the guys in the gospel who said to Jesus, first let me go bury my father, or first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Now, I don't have time to get into that, but essentially they were saying later. It was sort of like saying, well, I'll follow you when I graduate from college. It was, that, that was re- the real meaning of it, something like that. Or when Jesus told the story of the pearl of the great price, or the treasure buried in the field, he was saying to people, are you willing to arrange your life to get a, a piece of land like a real estate agent would to sell all his assets to get this one land that had the treasure in it? Are you really willing to do this? This is what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus talks about the broad road or the narrow road and says that only few choose the narrow road, he's not saying that the narrow road is hard. 
People don't choose the, the, people choose the broad road thinking it's easy, but it's actually the hard road. The good and the easy road is the narrow road. It's just that few people are willing to change their minds and actually take on the spirituality of Jesus and go down his road. So what if the response should really be something like this? I want to be made well. I don't know what I need to know, and I must now devote my full attention to it. Look, I know that for the most part, not everybody in this room, but I feel like I can say pretty assuredly that most everybody in this room is presently or has been at some point in their life burned out on the read five or 10 chapters a day or a week thing. I get it. I totally get it. But what are you gonna do to devote your full attention to having this mind that was in Christ, his kind of spirituality that makes us whole as human beings. What can we do to actually devote our attention to this so that in confidence we realize as we read in Isaiah this morning that who we're asking for this healing, who we're asking for this wholeness is our living Father, our Redeemer, who's famous from eternity for mighty acts of heartfelt pity and compassion. That's who we're asking. But again, I know what we fear today. What we fear, what's in the air today, is this fear that some people have rendered the worldview of Jesus foolish. It's weak and invalid. And that these famous people, usually athletes or actors or musicians or something, sometimes politicians, these people have rendered, they say, the worldview of Jesus, the, spiritual, the spirituality of Jesus, as invalid and weak and stupid and for another day and it cannot actually have anything to say to the complexities of human problems today. And that sort of sits in all of us because these are the famous cool people. That sort of sits in all of us as this little fear. But I wanna ask you just a straight out question, just as your friend taught, just a straight out question. Okay, wrap up in your head all the complexities of the world wrap up in your head all the potentialities of a wireless world and ask yourself, what has this world done one bit to shed a bit of insight on what it means to be human in the image of God? What one thing? There is nothing in quantum physics that can give you a coherent way for living life, but the mind of Christ can. There is nothing for you in the latest insights of all this sorts of stuff of technology. It can't give you a coherent, a coherent way for giving life because you're still a person who has to use this. You're still a person who has to interact with this wired world. And they give us nothing for what it means to be human in the image of God. But right in the middle of human history stands the Lord Jesus Christ. And right in the middle of this unfolding story, God has shepherded his word so that it remains alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate to the deep parts of our hearts if we'll go there with him. And then it can actually change us. So let me end by just saying this. You know, a couple weeks ago when we were in John 3, of course, we looked at, you know, the famous passage, John 3, 16. And this remains true in my view. John 3, 16 continues to cry out, those who believe in Jesus, who trust his mind, that is to say those who count on him, they won't perish. That is, they won't lead a futile and failing existence. 
but they will have eternal life. That is to say, the undying life of God himself will be made known to them and come alive in them. What if Jesus really does know about human life? What if he really knows the nature and purpose of the universe? And this is the last thought. Because it's true that the spirit of the age is saying we're in the know, and you have Jesus in the scriptures that stand in human history saying we're in the know, and this is a fundamental choice for everybody today, those sitting in church and those in the neighborhood around us who aren't sitting in church this morning. It really, in some ways, comes down to this. The words Jesus is Lord can mean little to nothing to the person who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. Unless you have confidence in the mind and spirituality of Jesus, you will not follow him. You might even sing songs about him but you will not actually follow him. I will not actually follow him until I come to love and adore and trust and respect his mind, his view on what it means to be human in the image of God. Amen.